0: When I started working on this series, one of the first people I reached out to was Kafwe Otto. I wanted to talk to him about idiocy.
1: Idiocy is just a synonym for, uh, like, stupidity, like being dumb.
0: (laughs) Kafwe teaches urban studies at CUNY. And back in April, he was thinking a lot about that word. Ordinary, colloquial sense, idiocy.
1: I mean, I I, I try to be as careful as I can going out and wearing masks and, you know, uh, washing my hands like multiple times uh, every three hours. Um, But I still do really, still do stupid stuff just because I'm I'm not used to it.
0: But he also thinks about this other meaning of idiocy, how Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels meant it in the Communist Manifesto. It's a line you might have missed.
1: I'd have to look it up. I'd have to look it up. All right, so the full line is uh, the bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns. It has created enormous cities and has thus rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life.
0: The idiocy of rural life.
1: So for them, you know, idiocy is basically a synonym for isolation or privatized isolation.
0: The word comes from ancient Greek. An idiot was someone who wasn't participating in democratic public life. So for Marx, idiocy was more and more a thing of the past.
1: So capitalism was doing away with the idiocy of real life.
0: The new mode of production was pushing people together. It was ugly, but it was making new kinds of social relationships.
1: You know, individuals in isolation, working on their petty plots of land, you know, do not see themselves as part of something larger. They don't see themselves as a broader working class. They don't see themselves uh, in fellowship or in kinship with other people who who exist in similar conditions. What cities and factories do is by bringing workers together, by providing kind of a, the conditions in which a class in itself can, can form. They see this, you know, this transformation as 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 the building blocks for that.
0: Marx thought that capitalist factories weren't just making new products; they were making a new historical subject.
1: The, the development of capitalism is providing the building blocks for its negation. It's providing the building blocks for this kind of revolutionary proletarian class. You know, a class that will eventually, according to Marx and Engels, you know, overthrow capitalism, transform, you know, the, transform the world.
0: Now, obviously, that's not really how it's worked out so far. Idiocy and capitalism are still with us. That's what Coughway studies.
1: I was interested in the idiocy of urban life. That is the degree to which cities can reproduce the same privatized isolation that, you know, Marx and Engels bemoaned or described as being eliminated in the rural countryside. So the privatization of public space, the rise of the surveillance society, the antisocial behavior ordinances, all these, all these different strategies that were running counter to the kind of idealized notion of a public space that is free and open for encounter.
0: And in the early weeks of COVID, Coffway was seeing idiocy in all its forms, in full bloom.
1: I mean, the coronavirus or co- our response, we we can see idiocy in both senses, right? There's a dumb shit component to COVID and our response to it. And there's also a kind of, well, what what does this mean for, you know, democratic public life, both now, you know, during quarantine and after? Um, and what will it mean for how we engage and, and fight privatized isolation or reject idiocy anew?
0: And this is where we were. Public life shut down. Everyone more isolated than ever. And the only people trying to take back public space were doing so to reopen the economy. It was an idiotic situation.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm just spitballing here in my closet, <laughs> surrounded by dirty clothes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, of course, that's all changed. Hey. Hey, Koffway?
1: Yeah, this is me. How you doing?
0: So since you last uh, ruminated for us, it seems like people got tired of of being idiotic.
1: Right. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, people are out in the streets. Um, I'm still in my closet and still at home, <laughs> mostly. But, uh, you know, yeah, things have changed. Um, I think that defund
0: the police, the emergence of that is really, really great. And Kafwe says he's hopeful. These protests are targeting the institutions that keep people isolated and divided, divesting from idiocy, and investing in collective life and solidarity.
1: Um, And especially if it's paralleled with, like, fund public schools, fund public education, fund all the things that have been defunded that were part of the public good for, um, you know, for <laughs> decades. I just think it's really, really, really cool. So,
0: yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> this is Antibody, a three-part series on life and politics under COVID nineteen from The Dig and Jacobin magazine. I'm your host, Daniel Denver. This is episode three combat, Chendrai Kumanika and workers fighting one of the world's largest companies, a dispatch from a doctor organizer in New York City, and mutual aid on the Siberian tundra. This is the last episode in the series, and I hope you enjoy it. Coronavirus made it suddenly clear that our government's capacity to do much of anything helpful was lethally minimal. Instead, society depended more than ever on our new private leviathan, Amazon, and the hundreds of thousands of workers who labor for Jeff Bezos' profit. There's been a lot of media coverage recently focused on Amazon workers organizing, especially in warehouses where workers were falling sick. Chendrai Kumanika is reporting a new series about Amazon workers. This is an excerpt from his first episode about how a longer labor struggle laid the
2: groundwork for what's happening now. Here's Chen Gerai. When I wanted to learn about what was going on with Amazon workers, I contacted DCH1 Amazonians United, a group of organized Amazon workers in Chicago. And they told me, you got to talk to Vanessa Carrillo. Vanessa started working for Amazon a couple of years ago, but it wasn't her first plan.
3: I applied for community College in Chicago, uh, an art school. And I was really excited for it, you know, I got accepted and I was looking forward to it.
2: But with the cost of college tuition, it was gonna take all of Vanessa's income to afford school. And then her sister got sick. And over time, the situation got worse.
3: You know, things went downhill. She had to be hospitalized for a little bit. And so that really hit us and, you know, and it, it hit home. Who's going to do what, who's going to pay for what, and, you know, how, how are we going to make it? It was, it was a big struggle.
2: So like millions of working class people across the U.S., Vanessa had to make a choice.
3: Due to the financial situation that we were in, uh, I couldn't afford to keep going and I had to drop out, start looking for a job.
2: And in August of 2015, Amazon opened a new 150,000 foot distribution center right in Chicago.
3: Uh, yeah, I heard it on the news, and I jumped into the laptop that I had back then, and I just typed in the website that they provided, and I was really excited. I said, well, if they started their hiring, then maybe this is it. And I filled out the application.
2: Vanessa got the job. It was 2017.
3: Yeah, at the distribution center, what we're, we're called Level 1s, we are in charge of bringing in packages They come from the fulfillment centers where they pack them, and we are in charge of storing them into the right place and get them ready for the drivers in the morning.
2: But to really understand Vanessa's work, you need to understand what the fulfillment center was from Amazon's perspective. Amazon dominates the online retail space, but its on-demand delivery service has plenty of competition from a whole host of startups. The new plant was part of a larger plan to outdo their competitors by making packages available to customers in less than two hours.
4: Amazon Prime Now is Amazon's new super fast delivery service.
2: For shareholders, this was great news. When Amazon made the announcement of this new delivery service, shares soared more than 12 percent. But for workers, it meant something different.
3: It is fast paced work. It's, uh, you know, packages are coming down down the line and it's just... uh, Constantly having to get them and scan them and you have to keep up with, you know, with the rate that they are and everything.
2: Amazon has become notorious for pressuring workers to work at a relentless, even frantic pace where taking too long of a bathroom break can cost you your job. I talked to an Amazon spokesperson who said this isn't true. But Vanessa and other DCH1 workers say that associates constantly fall short of the impossible speeds Amazon demands. They can't keep up. And they say that by selectively enforcing this speed, Amazon can punish them for other things.
3: No, it was, it was hard at the beginning. Uh, I worked at FedEx previously, but it was a complete different system to work with and a much faster pace.
2: When I heard about everything Vanessa and her coworkers were dealing with, I thought, no wonder Vanessa became an organizer. But the thing that got her started wasn't about extreme pace or surveillance tactics. It was about something way more basic than that.
3: Well, generally, we've been organizing since last year. Well, you know, we started with the water petition.
2: When Vanessa put together the words "water" and "petition," I thought I had misheard her, so I asked her to clarify. Yo, pardon me, Vanessa. Did you did you just say water petition?
3: Uh, yes. The warehouse management wasn't providing us with clean water. We only had like two water stations across the whole warehouse. They, you know, they had these uh the the five liter gallons for the, for those stations sometimes the gallon was full, sometimes it wasn't. When it was full, sometimes there were no cups. but the filter was, was dirty anyway. It was full of dust. It was never clean.
2: Amazon says the water issue was just a minor problem with water coolers, and they fixed it. But here's the thing. This company is one of the richest and most powerful companies in the world. And Vanessa and several other employees that I spoke to didn't feel like it was minor that she and her coworkers were being denied this basic thing for months on end.
3: You know, it's just water. We're not asking for too much. It's just simple water. We met at a at a Krispy Kreme and we started talking about how we can get water from management. And we started like having ideas and we're just like, well what if we do a petition? That way we can find out to see how many people are willing to sign for water. So we're like, yeah and we jotted out our demands. I think it was three demands. I can't remember exactly what they were. We started uh, gathering signatures. but there was a little bit of pushback because it's something that we've never seen in the warehouse before. A group of workers trying to fight for workers' rights, I guess, or at least for water at this point.
2: It wasn't just management they were struggling with. At first, some of the other workers weren't getting on board.
3: That's how much of of a strange situation that we were in. I like, guess because we're, we're not used to us having to fight for, for ourselves. You know, when we were gathering petitions in the break room, off, off the clock, we would hand up the petition and people would be like, no, it's okay, I bring my own water. I was like, yeah, okay, you bring your own water bottle, but I don't. Like, and regardless, it's something that they should be providing us to begin with. We shouldn't be asking for water.
2: What was the, the counter argument from, from the higher-ups about water?
3: There wasn't that much of a negative pushback. They were just trying to stop us from getting the petition through.
2: There's an important lesson here for all workers who are trying to fight for their rights in the workplace. What Vanessa's describing is a common strategy. The management of a company will tell the workers, it's not that what you want is wrong. We just don't like the way you're trying to get it.
3: Oh yeah, you guys don't you guys don't really need that, you know. we we can change the water, there's no problem.
2: By patiently listening and talking to their co-workers, one by one. Over the course of weeks, the DCH1 organizers eventually gathered 150 signatures. 150 workers had agreed that Amazon had to provide them with water. And they decided the best place to present their demands was the daily stand-up meeting before the shift.
3: All the associates surrounding the the manager for the night we're, were stretching. They're telling us about the goals, about the night before what the expectations are for the night, any safety tips. And then a coworker of ours was like, yeah, we got a safety tip. In fact, 150 of us do. We want water. The manager started freaking out. He got all nervous and he was like, yeah, I'll take care of this right away. And then someone else said, okay, but when? It's like, yeah, I'll take care of it right away, right now. It's like, okay, you guys are always saying you'll take care of it right now, but you guys never do. Like, We're demanding water for right now. We want water right now for tonight the manager was freaking out. Everyone, was, there was a lot of people coming in from different directions. You know, it's a, it's a circle. everyone's surrounding them. So he was freaking out. He didn't know what to do. And he just dismissed the meeting and he ran. And you know, he was on his phone the whole time texting. I'm guessing the site lead or something for for backup or for help. I don't know. And he ran out to the nearest grocery store and bought uh, cases of water bottles for everyone. Wow. Yeah. Like, he took, he took care of that right away. We were actually really surprised. And for the next couple of days, uh, they, they kept bringing in pallets of bottled waters for everyone. I think for a solid two weeks, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Vanessa and her co-workers had demonstrated their collective power.
3: And after that, they installed brand new water stations and water lines across the whole warehouse. And people ah. were extremely shocked that you know we actually won.
2: So how did that affect you in terms of what you learned about like you know how you felt about like organizing?
3: You know, it, for me, it clicked, and I said, hey, if this is what it's gonna take to make changes around here, then let's do it.
2: And the next year, they started taking on more battles. After taking a survey of workers' needs, they fought for better pay on Prime Day and air conditioning in the warehouse to help them survive through the brutal heat of the summer. Then they started a campaign to force Amazon to give them paid time off that they say was in their contract. The struggle for paid time off started with the warehouse in Sacramento. Vanessa and her coworkers heard about it, and they pulled together a petition with 251 signatures. But when management refused to meet with them, they knew they had to step things up.
3: DCH1 and United started handing out buttons. We had a button that said, Amazonians United for PTO. I think Amazon workers in New York also started doing the same thing. They also did a campaign for it.
2: So by the time COVID-19 hit Chicago, DCH1 workers were ready.
3: That's when we heard that we got a confirmed case at our warehouse.
2: This was in mid-March. To Vanessa and her coworkers, it seemed like Amazon was already trying to stop the workers from organizing. The first really big problem was how the company was talking about the case in the warehouse.
3: They didn't tell them as a general announcement. They were just telling them one by one, I'm guessing, to calm down the reaction from people. They didn't announce it to the whole warehouse until after three shifts came in. Later that day, at 4 o'clock, everyone received a phone call from, I believe, HR.
5: Dominic Wilkerson, site lead.
3: We want it was to- a recorded voice message from the site lead.
6: Last night, we learned of a case of a contractor at DCH1 with COVID 19. The affected individual was last on site
3: on March 17th. The site has been. But un- again, three shifts have already gone in from the local by the time the, the phone call. And our- I don't know if everyone got the phone call or not. We're like, okay, this is unacceptable. Uh, we got to do something about this.
2: COVID was already a full blown pandemic at this point and scientists were advocating for a clear set of safety precautions. So it was obvious what the workers' demands should be.
3: We're asking what the CDC is recommending. It's not that hard. Shut down this place for 14 days for a deep, clean sanitizing of the whole warehouse and full pay for all the workers in the warehouse. That means the Amazon employees and the third-party companies. And also the housekeeping needs to get paid.
2: Amazon justified keeping their crowded warehouses open by calling their workers essential. But Vanessa felt like they were risking their lives to ship out way more iPads and Ray-Bans than thermometers or personal protective equipment.
3: So we were demanding a suspension of the the processing of non-essential items through DCH-1.
2: The DCH-1 distribution center was built to be a hyper-fast profit machine and even amidst the crisis, the workers were still being punished for working too slowly.
3: We had a seven-year-old black woman who got written up by one of the higher-ups because she was working too slow. Like we, like, you can't be doing this, you know? Like, especially during during a pandemic like this, like, how, how dare you do this to her? So we're also demanding suspension of all disciplinary action against workers for low performance.
2: And Vanessa and the other DCH1 Amazonians made a decision a petition or buttons weren't going to be enough this time around. It was time to take things to the next level.
3: What if we protest or we strike? So we just started texting and calling as many people as we can and we just we just let them know it's like in case you didn't know we're learning you know that there's a confirmed case of COVID-19 in the warehouse. You know, we're explaining that we we don't think it's safe for anyone to be in there at the moment, but management thinks differently. So we're trying to shut it down.
2: What they were proposing would jam up the flow of goods through Amazon's systems.
3: I was nervous, because I was like, well, they can retaliate against us, they they can actually fire us for for anything. So we were concerned, and we kind of fell out of place, but we said, no, regardless of what happens, this is is right, we have to fight for this. We're not demanding something impossible. Amazon can afford to pay for everyone. So, like, we, we set aside that fear and we just and we just kept moving forward.
2: They decided to call it a safety strike and they planned the walkout for a Monday.
3: Yes, I was watching a live stream through our Facebook page.
2: Vanessa was actually quarantining, watching it all happen from online. And she was shocked to see so many of her colleagues show up. Even people who'd been skeptical, people who hadn't been part of the water fight, were walking out of the warehouse, protesting.
3: We weren't necessarily expecting it for it to be that successful. But when it actually did, people started coming to us left and right.
2: They were building support, but Vanessa and her coworkers knew they had to keep the pressure up.
3: We had a second protest the following morning for the morning shift.
2: By the time they walked out for their fourth protest in April, the number of workers involved had grown much larger. But this time was a bit different. Management came out, issuing commands, telling everyone where they could and couldn't be, and saying that everyone had to socially distance.
3: And they also started threatening workers with suspension of determination. And we're like, well, well, that's illegal.
2: Then the police showed up. Again, Vanessa seeing all of this on Facebook from home and watching the screen, she was getting nervous.
3: And I said, wow, is this is what it's come down to.
2: Cops and management out on the parking lot with protesters, telling them what to do. Things could get really bad.
3: next thing you know, we see all these bunch of cars come out of nowhere. All of a sudden, all these bunch of cars just started circling around the warehouse, honking their horns.
2: The DCH1 workers had no idea who these people were. They weren't a part of their team. Were they some alt-right trolls? Had Amazon hired some union-busting group?
3: And they're like, oh, we're just, you know, we're, we're customers. We heard about what was going on we came to help.
2: That's right. Customers in the area who had been watching the live stream and hearing about what was going on, and they just couldn't take it anymore. So in the middle of the COVID crisis, they put on their masks, got in their cars, and came to support the Amazon workers.
7: So, most, uh, you know, uh, all, all of
4: our neighbors, our community, came out to support, we, uh, it looks like some sort of
3: like, like a caravan. A community caravan. It was amazing.
2: Vanessa told me that when you work inside an Amazon plant, you can feel invisible to the public, separated from the people whose packages you distribute every day. The unique conditions of the COVID crisis changed these dynamics.
3: it was moving. It was really inspiring. I got I got emotional and I said, wow, a vast majority group of workers out there protesting for their lives at the, at that point. You know, we're playing with people's lives right now when it comes to COVID.
2: There's one more moment from this protest that I want to share with you. It happened as Amazon workers and some community members were protesting together in front of the distribution center.
3: The whole thing was blocking the Amazon lands and the police were trying to move the cars out of the way.
2: And then Vanessa saw something that really stunned her.
3: Management came out and offered bottled water to the to the police officers, and we're like, "Wow,
2: that's so interesting." Given what you told me earlier, yes. So the workers had to get a petition and do all that organizing to get water.
3: Yes, like, and these guys just get it just because they, you know, they conducted their vans. Okay, whatever.
2: Since that protest, more people at the warehouse have tested positive, and Vanessa says she and her coworkers are still keeping up the fight.
7: came here and they dug their
8: the entire night. Nice
0: that story was produced by Chenjerai Kumanika with help from Jacqueline Swazo and support from the Media Inequality and Change Center. Look out for Chenjerai's full series on Amazon workers later this year. And you can find out more about DCH1 Amazonians United by liking them on Facebook. Next up, an audio diary from inside a New York City hospital as the first COVID peak subsides and medical workers start thinking about the fight ahead. Kareem Saryamet has this story.
9: Things the things the CT had is right inferior lobe of the kidney, right kidney, showed an right. area of hypodensity, just it could be, be an abscess, abscess it, or a
1: carbuncle.
9: Carbuncle.
8: It's almost 7 a.m. at the hospital, and the residents are signing out. I'm taking over for some of the patients my friend Alex was monitoring overnight. Oh my god, you know who had a carbuncle? Marks. Who? Marks. No, marks? marks. Oh, marks. marks that marks. <laughs> no, not Mark. <laughs> marks carbuncle. I don't think I his carbuncle was on his kidney though. <laughs> kidney.
9: Anyway. Okay. Uh, but she has an <laughs> inferior lobe. Right, in, right kidney. <laughs> on the right kidney, <laughs> inferior
8: lobe. Okay. Throughout the COVID nineteen pandemic, this ritual never really changed. It's hard to make sense of everything that happened because not all of us experienced the peak in late March and early April. Now, the number of cases in New York City is dwindling, and care teams are almost back to their pre-COVID structure. The number of patients in the hospital was actually at a historic low recently. Later that week, Alex and I did the handoff again on a quiet night, and we started talking about what the peak was like for him.
9: Um, for most of the time that I was on working on the floors, we were severely understaffed. So like, literally, I was like, doing peritoneal dialysis on all of my patients while also like running, like calling rapids for (laughs) patients (laughs) and like not being able to go help the critical care team get a ventilator and like having to like bag a patient underneath a towel for 20 minutes until, you know, it's just, it's just really, it was wild. And like of the four nurses that were on the floor, um, two of them had a cough, one had a fever and like, wasn't being let off work because they were so severely on staff.
8: At the hospital, administration sends us messages almost every day, updates for the staff. During the worst of it, they tried to balance the narrative of mass death with acknowledgement of patients who recovered and left the hospital. Just at our hospital, there were several thousands of these people. But I was on a short rotation in the emergency room during the peak period, and I remember we would all count the number of rapid response alerts being called overhead, often five or six before lunch, and many more throughout the day. During breaks, I liked to retreat to one of the break rooms where some senior internal medicine residents would hang out. They would play video games or watch movies in between codes. Codes are when a person's heart is stopped, or they're not breathing. But the code team residents respond to lower level emergencies as well. Some of the residents were on the code team for a month, rushing to the rooms of deteriorating patients all day long. I think about these two related layers of suffering. The patients and the healthcare workers taking care of them all day and all night. It takes a toll on everyone. There are support services available, but the psychological environment of medical training is not one where workers process what we do openly.
9: They have that reality be met with conversations around, or words that are like, well, this was horrible or not, you know, this, our health, our hospital system did the best it could, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, I just think is wrong. Like, no, we didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, I think a lot of the concerns people had long before COVID would have made COVID much less horrible, um, much less deadly, much less, for the people that I worked alongside with that week.
8: Alex and I met last year, the weekend before we started residency together. We were nervously wondering how to spend our time, how to prepare. The chief resident at the time told us, your life is basically over for the next few years. Your time isn't your own, so just relax today. Medical trainees are taught to accept this to varying degrees. The pandemic has made our lack of autonomy even more obvious. Our work exists to generate profit. How was your night?
5: It was good. Um,
10: This is
8: Vanessa, another resident. We went outside together for a break recently. I was looking for something to like, to cover my hair with this morning. And I just like, don't even have, (laughs) I don't have a bandana or like,
5: (laughs) A uh, no. What yeah. About your book? P-P-E? <laughs> yeah. Well.
8: Yeah. I mean, I had a, I have all these like cloth masks. Yeah. Um.
5: So many. You tried of them. just like putting them together. Yeah. yeah exactly. I, I, I Yeah. I
8: thought of that. I was like, maybe if I put six of them together, like, they form <laughs> one nice like hairnet. I actually met Vanessa on Lefty Medical Twitter before we ended up in the same hospital as co-residents. She's intense and loving and brings that energy to her patients with an uncommon level of commitment.
5: Um, But yeah, I think it's like, it's challenging to be a a resident in general, like just to be in medicine and like being conditioned to accept this exploitation that kind of becomes more pervasive and, and exponentially so as you like go through it and being told like every step of the way that like, oh things will get better when you're at the next level and so seeing how like something that is like crisis level is kind of taken like this like illusion of control I think has been a really prominent theme. I have had a lot of um, anxiety which I feel like I like recognize that I have been having especially at the beginning like in March I was having a lot of like just somatic stuff. I was, like, having mad palpitations. Like, I was, like, always tachycardic. Like, I was always in the 120s, and I was like, what the hell is going on? And, like, some days are better, some days are not. Like, sleep difficulty, I don't know. It's been, like, very disruptive to my psyche. I just
8: to have it be more conversational, and then also get some hospital noise. Musab mm-hmm. is another is resident like, I'm yeah. close with. This is our, our, my only, um... Night shift interview. <laughs> so we have like in
5: hospitals. It's probably quieter than usual. Yeah. He <laughs>
8: started reading like Marx this year as he got more involved in organizing. We were on night shift together during Ramadan, and we talked about how the crisis activated him.
11: I think that
10: by getting involved in like the resident organizing, it made me appreciate
11: um, how there was like a sense of. It felt like a sense of like trying to take back something that. Was like never really ours to begin with, but like
10: still there was seemed to be power and like in people coming together. Um, I think it was a way for me to try to um, wrestle
11: control in an environment where I felt like I had no control.
8: experiencing the transition back, like... To normal? To whatever is next. (laughs) My friend Michelle is a critical care nurse. She grew up in the Bronx, not too far from the hospital.
11: Let's first go from the transition from shit to shit, because we were in a crap position before the pandemic, right? Like, before the pandemic, the care that this community received was not up to par.
8: She organizes outside of work, fighting for the rights of people in the borough. And at her job, she's really involved in the nurses' union. She sees both sides of the hospital, the exploitative labor dynamics inside and the way it harms the community outside.
11: This is a business. This isn't fucking healthcare anymore. Like, somebody needs to be real with people. Like, this is, nobody gives a fuck about the Bronx community. I live here I'll tell you right now My father got sick I came to the emergency room I was sent home They said Oh yeah he looks fine He's fine I took him home You know the next day Thank God I have a friend Who's like uh, in urgent care And she A doctor Called her She said Come over Bring your dad Bro my dad My dad had a, a, a Left lobe pneumonia <laughs> They didn't look at it They didn't x-ray it No antibiotics Was started I was so angry Kareem Because I know that An untreated pneumonia could potentially be fatal and I'm like, that's 62 fucking years old. And this, 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 almost killed them. <laughs> this is what they told me. They said, if you really want, you can wait and we'll give you an x-ray. And I said, okay, how long is the wait? They said two to three hours. I said goodbye. Because at that time, there was people coughing and sneezing throughout the, um, the tent. Yeah. It was a tent. tent. The tent was cold. It was March 20... 20- it might have been April 1st, and we went to that tent, and I swear to God, it was cold in it. It had no kind of, like, organization in there. So I looked at him, and I made that deduction, and I said, you're going home. We're going home right now. I'm not going to keep you here for two hours, and he's weak, you know. He's debilitated from the, the fucking disease process, so I'm like, I can't sit him here for two hours. So I brought him home or whatever. The whole thing, though, has made me realize, like, did it? How many patients, like, aren't, like, my father, and they didn't have an IC nurse at home, who's like, we're going back to the doctor today. I don't care, they said you're okay. And that messes with me. It messes with me internally, because no system should have been like this. Even a terrible one. It shouldn't have been that we sent people home to go die alone. That kills me. That one, that one really messes with me. The ability for us to have less people to die alone in their homes.
8: The mere fact of working in a hospital or otherwise being on the front line does not produce organization or clear political insights. Nurses are the best organized and most politically unified sector of health workers. They've been leaders in fights for universal health care nationwide, and in the Bronx, they've been fighting the closure of Mount Vernon Hospital, which serves a majority black working-class community. Most medical residents, though, are not unionized. And across the country, we're looking for ways to become more powerful as workers. At my hospital, we're still in the very early stages of starting to get organized.
11: When I think about the future, I think about how like, we have to organize. You don't have a choice. You organize or die right now, in my opinion. So for the micro scale, I think, like, my main thing is, of course, like, I got to organize my nurses, which is one of the hardest things to do in the world. You know, one of the easiest things you can do in life is create division. Mm -hmm. One of the hardest things to do in life, organize that division and create unity where there's division. So I don't think it's impossible. That's why I say, like, a lot of this with the pandemic is kind of almost a blessing for organizers, because we can use this. We can use this to get people together, to get them like to fight back. Um, like I said, anger is the greatest organizer, so let's use people's righteous anger and just direct it at the right people, not at each other.
8: Hi, Nijmee. How are you?
11: Hi.
10: All right, Kareem, how are you?
8: I'm good, thanks. While trying to organize with residents at the hospital this year, I've frequently called one of my mentors, Nijmi Zakiya-Zarenko. I must have called her every month during the pandemic. You know, we've been talking a lot recently, but I've mostly been reaching out to you for help. (laughs) Nijmi is a co-founder of Put People First Pennsylvania. She's been helping me think about how health workers can connect with broader working-class struggles.
10: During the pandemic, healthcare workers have really been animated
5: uh, through this crisis and are cohering themselves as a force, which we've always understood to be part of the working class, especially as the healthcare system has become uh, another uh, really deeply embedded mode of capitalist production in the healthcare system, right? So
11: the rights of individual workers and individual doctors, nurses and all people in healthcare system have been really stripped away.
10: And so we've always, you know, we we have understood healthcare workers to be part of the working class and now even more so uh healthcare workers are uniting in the interests of a transformed healthcare system for for all people.
8: When our working conditions leave me feeling isolated or the prospect of health workers taking action together seems impossible, calls like that with Nijmi help. She reminds me we're part of the whole working class. In the hospital these days, it looks pretty much like business as usual, but the other residents and health workers and I have been holding more meetings. Figuring out how to support each other and to deepen our commitments to broader forms of struggle.
0: That story by Kareem Saryamed. You can donate to Put People First Pennsylvania at putpeoplefirstpa.org. If you don't know, I have another podcast, a weekly interview show called The Dig. This special series, sadly, is coming to an end. Though, keep an eye out for future narrative series. They might even be called Antibody. Who knows? Anyhow, over at The Dig, we're talking and thinking about the pandemic, the national uprisings, and everything. You can check out The Dig at thedigradio.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash Listener contributions are what make antibody and everything that the dig does possible. Now, our final story. After COVID hit, everybody on the left was talking about mutual aid. The state was failing, capitalists were doing what capitalists do, and people had to look out for themselves. The English term for mutual aid actually comes to us from the old Russian anarchist Peter Kropotkin, and the practice goes back way further. Caroline Kanner and Jackson Roach have this story from the Siberian tundra. Here's Caroline.
10: But to get to Siberia, we have to start in Moscow with Kropotkin's childhood.
7: Peter Alexeyevich Kropotkin was born in the winter of 1842 in Moscow.
10: That's Oren Harmon, history of science professor.
7: Um, And on his father's side, he was born to the Rurik dynasty, who were the first rulers of Russia before the Romanovs
10: which meant that Kropotkin was literally a prince.
7: Kropotkin grew up in the lap of luxury. His family owned 1,200 souls in three different provinces.
10: When Oren says souls, he's talking about serfs. This is Tsarist Russia, and Kropotkin was born into
7: extreme wealth. And his world was a very kind of romantic one of birch trees and governesses and samovars and sailor suits and sleigh rides and things like that.
12: He has a, a home tutor. I think he's a French tutor, actually. That's Ruth Kinner, A political theorist and a historian of ideas. She wrote a book about Kropotkin. He has a very
7: conventional, orthodox, kind of privileged upbringing. And so when he reached the appropriate age, which is about 14 or 15, his father sent him to the core of pages in St. Petersburg.
12: Which is like the the elite military academy of its time.
7: And Kropotkin, who was extremely ambitious and very sharp. Does do incredibly well. Top of his class. And he was made personal liege to Tsar Alexander II. Um, So he was very close to the highest power in the land at a very young age. His parents are
10: thrilled. This is basically every aristocratic kid's dream. So, he spends a year serving the Tsar, and at the end of it, he gets to pick what he does next, which military unit he'll be posted to to start his career. And because Kropotkin had done so well in the Corps, he gets to pick any commission he wants.
12: The plum unit was always going to be at the court, to serve at the Tsar's court, because, you know, you'd spend your life just sort of wearing
10: nice clothes and going to the balls, and that and that would be it. To everyone around him, especially his parents, the choice was clear. But, for years, a different plan had been forming in Kropotkin's mind. Remember that French tutor Kropotkin had as a kid? Turns out the tutor was secretly passing him revolutionary literature. He's radicalized by this at an early age. And he stopped referring to himself as a prince. Also, in the core, he'd secretly started reading the Polar Star, which was this subversive, anti-monarchy newspaper. It was banned in Russia. And during his last year at the Corps, in 1861, Russia's serfs were all emancipated, including the ones his family owned. And Kropotkin was overjoyed
7: about it. And when the time came to pick a commission, he decided to go to eastern Siberia, of all places.
10: Um, He chooses to go to Siberia because... He can't stand the court. He's disgusted by all the concentrated wealth and power. So he,
12: he, he chooses the, the least desirable posting in, in conventional terms.
10: Almost 4,000 miles away and the opposite of the czar's court.
7: He arrives in Siberia, and he's extremely idealistic. He wants to reform prisons. He wants to build schools.
10: Kropotkin gets assigned to a prison reform committee. And these remote Siberian prisons, where the czar has locked up peasants and political dissidents, are predictably horrifying. He writes a long list of ideas for how to reform them, but they're all
7: ignored. And so he becomes extremely disillusioned with politics and with government.
10: Kropotkin's lofty plans for social change have totally fizzled, and he finds himself just going through the motions. An imperial bureaucrat in the middle of the wilderness. But while he's out there, the wilderness itself starts to capture more and more of his attention.
7: He had read On the Origin of Species when he was a lad in in the core of pages. And
10: out in Siberia, he couldn't stop thinking about it. Darwin's ideas were still basically brand new at that point. On the Origin of Species had come out just three years before he went to Siberia, and Kropotkin was obsessed with the theory. But maybe more than that, he was obsessed with the story of how Darwin came up with it. His adventures at sea, encounters with wild animals in wild places. So Kropotkin makes a decision. He quits the bogus reform committees and finds his way onto a team doing geological surveys and making maps of the Amur region in far Eastern Siberia, a chunk of literally uncharted territory that the Russian empire has just annexed from China.
7: And he embarks on a 50,000 mile journey in carts and aboard steamships and in boats, but chiefly on horseback.
10: They're traveling all over the region, making maps, steering barges down the Amur River. Kropotkin writes about riding through a blizzard.
4: Lying full length in the sled, wrapped in fur blankets, fur inside and fur outside, when the temperature is 40 or 60 degrees below zero.
7: To him, it felt like, in a way, this was his polar voyage of the beagle.
10: And like Darwin, he took copious notes on his observations of animals and their behavior, looking for patterns.
7: He had known that Darwin spoke of a fierce struggle between members of the same species, of an infinity of cacophonous battles, of brutal, unyielding, and cruel competition. But suddenly sees something very different. birds helping each other at the nest.
4: The intelligent, social birds rapidly gather in a flock and fly away if the robber is an urn. They plunge into the lake if it is a falcon, or they raise a cloud of water dust and bewilder the assailant if it is a kite.
10: Deer marching together to cross the enormous rivers of Siberia.
4: Scores of thousands of these intelligent animals came together from an immense territory, flying before the coming deep snow wolves coming together to hunt in packs.
10: And the wolves' prey also working together to fight them off.
7: He saw horses forming protective rings to guard against predators.
10: You can imagine Kropotkin scrambling over the top of a ridge and looking down at a herd of wild horses in the valley below. When a pack of wolves shows up, the horses immediately snap into formation, a tight circle with the foals and grandmas in the center. Even from a distance, Kropotkin can see their bodies making the spokes of a wheel, snorting steam and stomping the frozen ground, the circle tightening at the points where the wolves get close. In time, the wolves give up and scamper off. Kropotkin watches all of this totally amazed. He writes,
4: I failed to find, although I was eagerly looking for it, that bitter struggle for the means of existence.
7: Everywhere he looked, Kropotkin found collaboration.
10: It's not that Darwin was wrong about competition, exactly. It's just that the whole thing was so much more complicated than Kropotkin had realized.
7: Yes, there is struggle in nature. There is competition in nature. But it isn't necessarily between members of the same species. Sometimes the enemy, so to speak, is the environment. And the way to struggle against the enemy is to come together and to cooperate.
4: The fittest are not the physically strongest, nor the cunningest, but those who learn to combine as to mutually support each other, strong and weak alike, for the welfare of the community.
7: By the time he returns to St. Petersburg um, in April 1867, he writes in his diary that the poetry of nature has become the philosophy of his life.
10: And then a lot of things start to happen very quickly. If you know anything about Kropotkin, you've probably heard this very weird
7: part of the story. He starts living a double life. On the one hand, he goes to the learned debates at the Geographical Society and to lavish imperial soirees, because remember, he is a member of the aristocracy. And on the other Mm -hmm. hand... He um, disguises himself as a peasant.
10: He invents this peasant alter ego named Borodin and spends more and more time lecturing at underground meetings and publishing manifestos and distributing revolutionary pamphlets. He then gets involved in the Tchaikovsky circle. Nothing to do with the classical composer, just happened to have the same name. A very radical uh,
12: revolutionary group. Um, and it's through his, in- his involvement with that group that he gets arrested um, and imprisoned.
10: After a few years in a four foot wide cell, Kropotkin's underground comrades break him out of jail with a scheme that involves a pocket watch with coded instructions hidden inside, a violinist outside the prison playing a mazurka as a diversion, and a getaway carriage drawn by a specially procured racehorse. That night, they celebrate at the fanciest restaurant in St. Petersburg, where no one thinks to look for them. The next morning, he crosses the border into Finland and takes a boat west. Yeah, this should be a film. <laughs>
12: yeah, and, and, and of course it makes his name in the UK.
10: After a few years getting kicked out of countries all over Europe, Kropotkin manages to find a lasting home in the Bromley suburb of London. Courtly life and Siberia are distant memories. At this point, he spends most of his time organizing demonstrations, giving speeches, and writing about communal decision-making, abolishing private property, abolishing hierarchies of every kind. He becomes a household name, the Anarchist Prince.
7: Then comes March 1881, and Alexander the second whom he used to be liege to, is assassinated. And Kropotkin at this stage is increasingly turning to science to find the backing for his revolutionary activities.
10: As Kropotkin is reading the scientific literature of the day, he encounters an emerging idea, social Darwinism. The idea that Darwin's theories about evolution should be the foundation for social policy. People like Herbert Spencer, who who actually coins the
12: phrase, the survival of the fittest.
10: But Spencer and other writers were operating under a very specific interpretation of Darwin's theory. The parts of Darwin that describe conflict, struggle and hierarchy. Darwin did try to make it clear that cooperation played a role in evolution too. But Kropotkin is watching Spencer and others basically cherry-pick the parts of Darwin that justified their own political agenda.
4: They came to conceive the animal world as a world of perpetual struggle among half-starved individuals, thirsting for one another's blood.
7: And it really... in. En- angers him, he, be, he, he becomes completely enraged.
12: The, the, the concern that he has is is not
7: just about the, the
12: science, it's the way that the science is being used to, to drive certain social scientific models.
10: Inequality, imperialism, and capitalism, all justified as natural results of natural law. And Kropotkin just thinks this is an utter disaster. And Kropotkin feels like he needs to do something.
7: He feels like he needs to rescue darwin from the infidels he writes
10: he sees these ideas all over the popular press and being acted out in the real world and he says
7: i need to write a response
10: and kropotkin's response centered around a single term mutual aid
6: so he was really responding to darwin charles darwin's theory of evolution and especially kind of the bastardization of his theory by you know by taking slogans such as survival of the fittest and applying them to the imperialist kind of European context to say that it's natural evolution, that uh, certain classes or certain races are above other certain classes and other certain races in human society.
10: This is Nick Estes. He's a historian and the co-founder of the Red Nation, an indigenous resistance organization. They do a lot of mutual aid work and Nick is an expert on the history of the term.
6: And so the idea of mutual aid is a response to this particular framework of naturalizing capitalist domination of of people, but also of non-human life as well.
10: In 1902, Kropotkin published a book, not a political manifesto, more like an anarchist science textbook, drawing on all those things he saw back when he was in Siberia. The book was called Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. It was written in English, and it was Kropotkin's way of fighting back against the social
7: Darwinists. The science of anarchy and the science of nature are now converging in his mind.
10: He fills the book with examples of animals all over the world cooperating. From crabs flipping over stranded comrades, to marmots whistling warnings to each other, to vultures and beetles sharing food even down to the smallest creatures.
4: And we must be prepared to learn someday from the students of microscopical pond life, facts of unconscious mutual support.
10: One of his favorite examples, ants.
4: Their wonderful nests, their buildings, superior in relative size to those of man, their paved roads and overground vaulted galleries, their spacious halls and granaries, their cornfields harvesting and malting of grain, their rational methods of nursing their eggs and larvae, and of building special nests for rearing the aphids whom Linnaeus so picturesquely described as the cows of the ants. And finally, their courage, pluck, and superior intelligence. All these are the natural outcome of the mutual aid which they practice at every stage of their busy and laborious lives.
7: Kropotkin ends by concluding Do not compete. Competition will always be injurious to the species. And you have many resources that allow you to avoid it. And he writes quite beautifully, That is the watchword which comes to us from the bush, the forest, the river, the ocean. Therefore combine. Practice mutual aid.
10: But in the book, he didn't just write about non-human animals. He also wrote about people, including indigenous people, who he referred to as savages and barbarians. In some ways, Kropotkin really admires the people he's writing about.
4: The mutual aid institutions, which were developed by the creative genius of the savage.
12: I mean, they're
10: superior as models of
12: social organization because they practice mutual aid.
10: But at the same time, he regurgitates some really racist language to describe non-European societies.
4: Like all savages, they are fond of dancing. He uses the language of primitivity and savagery.
10: This is Nick Estes again.
6: So I was politicized within the anarchist scene uh, in the Great Plains and... For those of you that don't know that region, it's very white.
10: Nick's <laughs> so, a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. He told us about when he first heard the term mutual aid.
6: I actually didn't encounter this in the academy. I encountered it in movement spaces through like food, not bombs, through uh, things such as like the, D- the DIY culture of like punk rock and, and things like that. And it's He
10: liked the term, mm-hmm. felt like it was so, useful.
6: Hearing that term for the first time actually helped me kind of understand um, I guess, like, how, in the la- in the absence or neglect of the state, um, colonized populations organize, but then also... But like he also noticed how racist Kropotkin could be. This He places savages on the kind of lower end of the social development
4: scale. They still occupy one of the lowest degrees of the human scale. Um, it's incredibly problematic. And
10: but so- not something yeah. the white anarchists around him were really talking about.
6: So many of the people... Um, that I was encountering these terms through were uh, white themselves, uh, often, you know, descendant of settlers. It didn't translate well with my lived experience, and it wasn't until much later um, when I got involved in American Indian studies or Native studies that I began to understand that the theories that Indigenous people have in, in how we understand the world as caretakers is actually a much more robust and developed theory of mutual aid.
10: Kropotkin may have popularized this English language term, mutual aid, but he definitely did not invent the idea or the practice.
6: People who were brought here against their will um, or indigenous people have mutual aid networks to survive genocide and to survive colonization.
13: People don't know about the brown and black history of mutual aid, which has been going on since the dawn of time. Regan DeLoggins is an art historian, educator, and organizer. Regan, um, Mississippi I'm Regan. Um, I'm Mississippi Choctaw, um, and I currently reside in uh, Canarsie land in so-called Brooklyn.
10: We talked with a lot of mutual aid organizers for this story.
13: They told us about the work they're doing right now and the histories they draw from. I I go to indigenous practices first, and I think of potlatch and gift-giving.
8: You know, mutual aid has been going on for all time.
13: Ace Katana
10: does mutual aid in L.A.
4: In Black communities and immigrant communities, in, in Asian-American communities. It's something that's, you know, part of the American the American tradition of neglect of its communities.
14: Having grown up undocumented in this country... Mutual aid was, like, very important. Andrina Niss is an organizer
10: doing mutual aid, also in L.A.
14: Food stamps were a no-go. Disabilities a no-go. Unemployment's a no-go. And so a lot of my survival was our neighbors bringing us, you know, rice and beans. Once you're one of those marginalized people that doesn't have access to any of these kind of programs that are our social safety net, you understand that there has to be something outside of that because there's always someone that's going to get left out.
10: Organizers told us about the mutual support societies of freed formerly enslaved people in northern cities, the sociedades mutualistas of migrants from Mexico in the South, the Young Lords, Black Panthers. The Black Panthers ran maybe the most famous mutual aid program in recent history, their free breakfast program. My
11: name is Kalita Smith. I'm eight and a half years old.
14: My school was started by the Black Panther Party.
0: My school served us breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
10: They also provided free ambulance rides and medical clinics, free rides for elderly people doing errands, free clothes, education and child care, and free legal support. The Young Lords in New York also ran free breakfast programs and dental clinics and history classes and medical testing.
2: The point where government fails and people organize themselves and confront government, you know, that's in the spirit of the Young Lords.
10: And the chosen family support structures of New York's ball culture, people doing rescue operations and sharing food and water and supplies during Hurricanes Sandy and Maria and Katrina, and eviction defense actions and the sanctuary movement
6: i write about the story of my grandfather whose name was tongue because he would give out um meat from his his cattle herd after slaughter to um, everyone who needed it everyone who needed food keeping only the tongues for himself
10: and doing mutual aid on any scale has often been dangerous work
6: Uh, because it was illegal to give away possessions and illegal to um, give out things to the most needy.
13: You know, potlatch was was outlawed and completely criminalized
6: because they were trying to indoctrinate and instill Indigenous people with the concept of you know individualism, uh, unbridled individualism.
10: In an internal memo in 1969, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover described the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program as. Potentially the greatest threat to efforts by the
13: authorities to neutralize the BPP
10: and destroy what it stands for.
13: It's it's important that people who are doing mutual aid practices understand that people of color were targeted for practicing mutual aid. And that our resilience was seen as uh, too much of a threat, and so it was squashed.
10: And beyond directly attacking mutual aid institutions those in power have always looked for stories to tell that undermine the very idea that it's possible or practical to take care of each other. And in Kropotkin's time, that story was survival of the fittest, Darwin.
6: You can understand how... Um, you know, with the rise of industrial capitalism and the rise of the steam engine and the modern factory system within Britain at this particular time, that somebody like Charles Darwin, who's using this language, would be appealing to like the ruling class because it's naturalizing it's naturalizing this this pillaging tendency.
10: Which is why, even though the history of mutual aid is so much bigger than Kropotkin, it still may be useful to think about his story because of the way he came up with the term, in a specific moment, as a way to confront the scientific and economic consensus of his time. Near the end of his book, Kropotkin writes,
4: Although the destruction of mutual aid institutions has been going on in practice and theory for three or four hundred years, hundreds of millions of men continue to live under such institutions, They piously maintain them and endeavor to reconstitute them where they have ceased to exist. In our mutual relations, every one of us has his moments of revolt against the fashionable individualistic creed of the day.
10: And right now these moments of revolt are happening all the time. Moments of revolt against so many public narratives with social Darwinist overtones, hierarchies of who is necessary, who deserves to be safe, Who needs help and who's capable of helping? Mutual aid flies in the face of all that.
11: Like, we're going to make sure we're all okay and we're going to focus on the most marginalized and the most vulnerable of us and then work our way up.
10: Brittany Thomas is director of programs at a black and trans-led Chicago community center called Brave Space Alliance.
11: We're all making sure that everyone has what they need to survive during hard times. And so if I have something, I give it to you. And if you have something, you give it to me. And, you know, we just do that throughout this entire mutual aid
14: network. People need help and we can do it.
11: We have
8: one intake form. It is both for people who are requesting aid and for people who are offering to help
0: and a lot of times those are the same people
11: and they'll say it like i've been laid off i have a lot of free time with my hands and you know although like i'm not in the best position i do have a car and i do have faith and i'm willing to deliver food to people who can't leave their homes or go grocery shopping
8: like if somebody has lost
9: their job but has successfully filled out their application for unemployment and knows how to navigate that That is a skill that can be used, can be given to other people, can be
1: taught to other people.
13: No matter the age, no matter the ability, no matter the education, everyone can contribute. This goes against, you know, survival of the fittest because mutual aid sees everyone as fit by different definitions of what fit is.
10: When we first started talking to all these organizers, it was at the height of the pandemic. They were running food pantries, helping people sign up for unemployment
11: the pandemic has started, we delivered to 1,800
10: individuals. Now, a lot of them have also jumped into doing protest support. On the first night of protests in Chicago, Brave Space Alliance opened up their offices to people who needed somewhere to go. They've coordinated jail support and have even started doing free COVID testing for protesters. All on top of the mutual aid work they were already doing. Yes,
13: yes, yes. you know,
9: the crisis has always been
11: here, right? right?
10: And so this work has always been necessary.
6: The Red Nation was doing mutual aid um, prior to COVID-19, and we're doing mutual aid during COVID-19, and we'll probably be doing mutual aid after COVID-19.
10: The hope, of course, is that the mutual aid that springs up during a crisis will last and grow.
14: I think for the long term, you know, that's what it takes to build power is... Um, building a community of people who feel like their actions could lead to something like a better world for someone.
6: I think for the the future of this planet, if we want to live together, you know, um, that we actually need to take, you know, a more scientific and a more humanitarian approach and to actually scale up mutual aid as something that's an aspiration for a larger system of care.
10: Science, by the way, is finally catching up. When Kropotkin died in 1921, 20,000 anarchists came to his funeral. Some let out of prison just to be there. But his ideas about biology were basically forgotten. Now, though, Western academic science has finally come around to the idea that mutual aid is a real factor of evolution.
7: Nowadays, cooperation has become sort of the third pillar alongside variation and selection in our understanding of evolution. And we know today um, that everything from genes to genomes to cells to societies need to harness the creative powers of cooperation uh, in order to come to be. And that the origin of things like chromosomes uh, ant colonies Language, morals are really due to what has been termed the snuggle for existence, not the struggle for existence.
10: (laughs) So science has now caught up to Kropotkin on mutual aid. But Kropotkin himself was just catching up to thousands and thousands of years of human traditions and knowledge.
13: I see it as an indigenous teaching that Kropotkin got a
6: glimpse of. I have a, a very expansive view of what counts as like science and the observation of the so-called natural world in many indigenous languages and cultures there is no word for nature right which suggests that there isn't that kind of bifurcation of uh humanity or at least the elevation of humanity above the rest of uh life on this planet and so That's really where um, I think that mutual aid plays a really important role in understanding competition, avarice, greed um, are not natural, um, nor the universal tendencies, not just among human species, but non-human species as well.
10: Wherever you look in human and animal history, mutual aid is the norm, not the exception. Not just because it's the moral thing to do,
13: but because it works. Mutual aid isn't done out of, like, the kindness of our hearts. Like, yes, that helps. It's nice to not be shitty to one another, like, but we don't do mutual aid because we're like, oh, I love you. We do it because we respect people's autonomous lives and we want to see our communities thrive. Like, that's, that's what it's based in.
4: It is not love to my neighbor, whom I often do not know at all, which induces me to seize a pail of water and to rush towards his house when I see it on fire. It is a far wider, even though more vague feeling or instinct, of human solidarity and sociability which moves me. So it is also with animals. It is not love, and not even sympathy, which induces a herd of ruminants or of horses to form a ring in order to resist an attack of wolves not love which induces wolves to form a pack for hunting, not love which induces kittens or lambs to play, or a dozen of species of young birds to spend their days together in the autumn. It is a feeling infinitely wider than love or personal sympathy, an instinct that has been slowly developed among animals and men in the course of an extremely long evolution, and which has taught animals and men alike the force they can borrow from the practice of mutual aid and support and the joys they can find in social life.
0: That story was produced by Jackson Roach and Caroline Kanner. Kropotkin was voiced by Theo Green. Thanks to the Red Nation, Brave Space Alliance, Ground Game LA, K-Town for All, Club A, and the Indigenous Kinship Collective. You can find links to donate and get involved with all those organizations in the notes for the show. Antibody is produced by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our theme music is by Jeffrey Brodsky, and our artwork is by Alex Hainsworth. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Mattaford, Johnny Ripper, Clyde and the Mill-Tailors, Kate Tucker, and Amigo the Devil. A very special thanks to Liza and Mitchell for putting this whole thing together and making my strange vision for a commie this American life a reality. And. Thanks to all the very talented people who contributed segments to Antibody. Special thanks to our regular DIG team. That's Alex Lewis, Julia Rock, Zachary Nin, and Thea Riofrancos. You can follow us on Twitter at The DIG Radio. And subscribe to both this show and The DIG wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever, because those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends, family members, whoever that you like the show, please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. And that's it for Antibody, at least for now. Thanks for listening.